ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to these go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell. Greg Dutch are sitting across from me. Greg, what's going on, dude? Dude, I cannot wait for this podcast. I know I say that about everyone, but uh, I've already got my um, ministry theological response team in place. <laughs> I have um, Benjamin and Isaac Dutcher. Uh, and if you heard Ben wax eloquent on Stranger Things, he is ready That's right. for the theological minutiae <laughs> that will come our way. I've got the boys ready. Isaac will probably respond with um, um, his insights on the upcoming Doctor Strange movie. But trust me, there's <laughs> theological truth in there. So that's my way of saying, eh, I think this one's going to going to be a very yeah. uh, provocative, I mean that in the most positive way, intellectual, yes. scripturally challenging podcast we've had in some time, so I'm fired up. Yeah. I no pun to- intended. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it is intended. Could be. Um, so, yeah, we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Um, but first, quick word from our sponsor, Olive Tree. Olive Tree Software. Uh, check them out online. Uh, just look them up. And uh, they've been partnering with us for several months now. It's been a pleasure to do that. Uh, how many times have I said it? Nathan, you know it. Sean, you see it. Uh, you guys are both uh, in our church together, uh, and um, I uh, use their products regularly. I mean, mm-hmm. I so much of my Bible reading, so much of my study, maps, concordances, I owe to Olive Tree's convenient thing. Let me again talk about across multiple platforms access. Mm. Since most people now have more than one device. Remember the old days when just having a laptop was novel? Yeah. And now families have like six of them and you pull them out of baskets underneath your TV uh, table and stuff. Um, To be able to be on my iPhone, iPad, my desktop, to be somewhere else and to log in with my account and pull up my information, my saved notes, uh, you won't be disappointed. So check out their great products. Uh, Enter our special promo code, the word SUSTAIN, for a great discount. And thank you, Olive Tree. Awesome. Um, so again, we do want to dive into um, what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so let's go ahead and introduce our two guests. Uh, first, Sean Nolan. Sean's been on with us before. Sean, how you doing? Doing all right. Thanks. Anything uh, new since the last time we had you on? Um, well, I have I have two kids still in diapers, so I'm still, <laughs> yeah. still tired. So he like gets what's the he, last time? He gets new surprises every day. That's <laughs> new surprises yeah. every day. Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, I'm, I mean, I've been here about 14 months now. I moved here from New York and mm-hmm. excited to be here. Um, trying to wait before considering having any more kids. And, um, <laughs> Wisdom and, beyond your years. Yeah. So here and, uh, yeah, just thankful to be a part of uh, CFC and have a, you know, a church family down here despite being, you know, away from all of our previous friends and family in New York and, uh, couldn't be more excited about that. So Yeah. It's great having you on, man. Thanks for joining us. And, dude, if I can jump in before you get to uh, our other special guest. Yes. uh, Two quick shout-outs. One to uh, a friend of mine, Dan Bowman. Mm -hmm. Dan uh, is a buddy of mine, going back several years now, was in our church uh, with us uh, several years back. Um, He's actually in a different state now, not not too far over the line, but just a bit. And uh, Dan met me for breakfast a month or two ago and said, have you heard so-and-so? You're going to introduce in a second. Yes, <laughs> and uh, I said, "Man, this is this. I love when this happens because Sean, around that same time, which is why he's on tonight, started talking to me about this. Yep. In mm-hmm. fact, I think you told us one night. Have you guys had the So and So podcast? Have you heard them? Have you listened to them? Really, really neat stuff. Sean and I have shared some of our own views on this issue. 
that we're going to get to tonight, and um, just wanted to say that. I Shout out to Dan Bowman, who actually got us uh, our guest email. Yes. And helped uh, broker that contact, so thank you, Dan. Yes. Um, and so without uh, – well, a little bit more further ado, because what we want to say is uh, we are confident, just like with Bruce Ware, that this is going to spark much uh, controversy. This is going to spark many more questions and thoughts and insights. Mm. Um, and so what we want to say is uh, feel free to be emailing us at uh, these go to 11 the number 15 at gmail.com. Uh, you can also go to our website on Podbean. Uh, there is a uh, way to communicate with us there, yep. topic suggestions. Um, you can just use that to ask us questions. Um, we are going to compile a list of questions, and um, our guest has already said that he will be willing to come back on. So yeah, There's going to be a total part two, man. Yes. And all the best things are part two. Godfather, <laughs> um, uh, Empire Strikes Back. And the classic Cannonball Run two, <laughs> Home Alone, Home Alone two, man, The Ring two. Uh, there's going to be some um, part two is a mandatory. The, thing. the Ring two, yeah, <laughs> yeah, dude, because nothing screams Oscar worthiness like The Ring two, Blair Witch two. Yeah, that's just... <laughs> oh, oh, uh, yeah, and was... we're deteriorating. Yeah, Sorry, already going down here. Before we even introduce the guest, man. I know. He's got to pull us out of this. He does. Um, and our guest, Chris Date. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing very well, and it's a pleasure and honor to be here. But i got to say, there's no possible way I'm going to live up to the way that you guys have spoken me up. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, man. See, what we're really trying to do is uh, detract from our listeners' perspective how bad we are. Um, <laughs> so we talk up the guests so they don't notice our own mistakes and such. But. Uh, well, I'm happy to help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself, friends, family. We're going to get to your ministry in, in a minute, but um, anything that you would like people to know uh, biographically about yourself? Oh, boy. Well, I, uh, was, uh, I've been a believer since I was about 20 or 21 years old. Prior to that point, I was an atheist. Um, Me too. When I was saved, I... Uh, accepted what I understood to be sort of the de facto Christian view of the topic that we're going to be discussing today um, and defended it over the course of several years, particularly as I discovered the importance of apologetics in the areas of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the um, and Mormons and things like that. And so I defended the, that view and then um, a few years ago began to change my mind on the topic that we're going to be discussing. Uh, but the reason that I changed my mind is also biographical, which is that very early on in my faith, I realized the absolute importance of making scripture um, our utmost uh, authority, the, the thing that we um, test all truth claims in light of. And so for me, um, you know, my, my changes of mind ultimately must follow uh, the clear teaching of scripture, um, as we'll be talking about today, happened in the, on the topic of hell. Uh, otherwise, by biblio, uh, biological, or not biological, biographical. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, biologically, I'm, I'm married for uh, 16, almost 17 years there now. I've go. got four boys ranging in age from 15 at the oldest down to three. No daughters. Uh, unfortunately, that was not in the Lord's plans. Uh, I am a, a, a Calvinist. I self self 
identify as Reformed Baptist, although my my Reformed Calvinist uh, carrying card might be revoked by uh, the powers that be <laughs> for the reasons we might get into. In the Sorry, Greg's was revoked a long time oh, ago. A long time ago. <laughs> I mean, I still call uh, myself one, but others don't. But I do. Is it because you don't have a beard? Right. Like a, a gnarly beard. It's not a glorious, you know, thick beard, but I do have a beard. Okay, there you um, go. Uh, sorry, I meant, um, I meant Greg. I didn't know. I actually don't know what you look like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've got my goatee, man. And then I guess the last thing I'll mention until we until you guys come up with you know some other probing questions. I uh, I'm currently wrapping up an undergraduate uh, bachelor's degree in religion at Liberty University, okay. uh, and I've been accepted uh, into Fuller Theological Seminary for their master's program, which I'll begin in the fall of next year. So fantastic. That's oh, and and in terms of career, I'm a software engineer. Um, but I hope one day to uh, transition out of software engineering and into teaching, uh, mm-hmm. and hence the uh, academic pursuit. Cool. Excellent. Very nice. Um, so we are going to, uh, unless you guys have any other biographical questions. No, no. I mean, I'm uh... – One other thing actually if, if I can ask. I think I already know the answer to this, but just for our listeners, um, as far as – you mentioned you're a Calvinist. Did I also hear you once say that you're an inerrant- inerrantist – um, yes, I, I do affirm the inerrancy of the autographer. Yeah. You kind of also alluded to that as well, but just to just to no. get that out there, cool. I think it'll be important. So. Very good, yeah, uh, for what we're going to talk and, about, especially. Yeah, in fact, I'm I'm really wacky, uh, you know, very fundamentalist. Apart from this one topic, I'm also a young Earth creationist, so that probably makes me wacko in the eyes of many Christians nowadays. Um, like I said, I'm an inerrantist. Uh, I'm conservative, virtually fundamentalist in, in every imaginable way, except for the one that we're going to be discussing today. Wow. Wow. <laughs> nice. Interesting. <laughs> so what we are going to be discussing today is um, partially uh, through your podcast, Rethinking Hell. Um, and by the way, uh, you know, we want to make a plug for that because um, that has been uh, so great to listen to and just challenge um, our thoughts. Uh, and, you know, I say are the three of us in here on our views on hell and just give us, you know, great insight. Um, the way uh, you speak about uh, the idea of rethinking hell is intelligent. It's well informed. And most importantly, it's so uh scripturally based. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, Chris, just want to give you a few minutes to go ahead and share your thoughts and ideas, um, on this idea of rethinking hell. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that. So first of all, um, the reason it's called rethinking hell is not necessarily because our, um, our primary motivation is to make everybody think differently about hell than they already do. Rethinking hell is meant more to capture the idea of going back and examining what the scriptures have to say as the basis for whatever it is that we believe in hell, because frankly, um, many of us on any side of this debate uh, tend to hold our view of hell um, for less than biblical reasons um, if we haven't really studied the topic closely. And, and I find that's true of my fellow conditionalists, and I'll be explaining that in a moment. But I also find that it generally is true of many traditionalists, uh, people who hold to the traditionally dominant view of hell as eternal conscious torment. So what we're by rethink, we just mean take another closer look 
at what Scripture has to say. And if in the end you remain convinced of the view you have now, great. But at least you'll know why, and you'll know why you don't, uh, why you reject the alternatives to whatever your view is. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea behind rethinking hell. But as you guys have noted, this conversation will be kind of controversial because we do advocate a different view of hell than the traditionally dominant one. Uh, we are, the view that we advocate is uh, most historically known, I think, by the label conditional immortality. It sometimes goes by the name annihilationism. Uh, and what conditional immortality means is that the gift – or is it immortality, the, the, the fact of living forever, is something that will only be granted to the saved. Um, and the lost, when they are resurrected unto judgment, will remain mortal just like they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather than being capable of living forever, they will instead die a second time and, and, and forever uh, and never consciously exist ever again. Um, so – I'm, we'll be t- I'm sure we'll be talking about why that's what we believe, uh, but that is the view that we hold. And, and because um, in some circles that view is deemed outright her- heresy, uh, this can be a very controversial and um, at times hostile discussion. Yeah, uh, if, if I may very quickly, and again, this is in the process of clarifying your view at this point, sure. Chris. Um, a number of people, I'm sure, have said about you. Um, and uh, folks at Rethinking Hell, uh, I know this was said of John Stott, um, and uh, I'm sure uh, Edward Fudge and some others, that, oh, yeah, yeah, those guys don't believe in hell, which we think is an unfortunate caricature of your position. Um, so uh, just uh, to be a little bit uh, defensive here on the outset, how would you answer that when people say, oh, yeah, yeah. you're the guys that don't believe in hell? What would you say? <laughs> Well, I mean, first of all, insofar as hell is defined as eternal conscious torment, then of course we don't believe in in, in hell so defined. Um, we do, however, believe in hell as a biblical uh, reference to the final punishment of the resurrected lost. Mm-hmm. So, so all Christians, all Orthodox Christians, I think, uh, must agree, and we do agree, that one day all the dead will be raised, both saved and the lost, uh, where we depart from the traditional view of eternal conscious torment is that historically and, – and this is actually becoming a little bit uh, – it's becoming fashionable to deny this, um, what I'm about to explain as the traditionally historical view. But it is the dominant view throughout history, which is that when the lost are resurrected, they, like the saved, will also be made immortal. Mm-hmm. Their bodies will be made capable of living forever. Hell, in in this view, is not sort of a place where disembodied souls suffer in the in the underworld or something like that forever. It's resurrected people, their muscles expand, uh, contracting and relaxing, their lungs expanding and collapsing, and so forth. But they're made immortal, so they can live for live forever. Uh, and so it's not uncommon for you to hear people uh, outside of the context of this debate say things like, "Everybody gets eternal life. The question is where they live it." Yes. Right. Yeah. So so. Uh, so I'm sorry. What was the original question? <laughs> no, just that. Um, and um, uh, the reason I ask it sometimes I hear people say, "Oh, those uh, those annihilationless, those conditionless." Um, oh, they just think that when you die, that's it. Right. And yeah. And I think that's a very unfortunate characterization. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And thank you for getting me back on track because I started when it started to go off the rails. No, it was uh, good. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> Yeah, we, we definitely do believe that the lost will be resurrected, they will be judged, um, and they will be probably violently destroyed, the likes of the painful destruction experienced by the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not uh, – it's not a light switch, you know, and the lights – the switch isn't turned off and the lights aren't 
aren't suddenly go dark. I mean, mm -hmm. God doesn't snap his fingers and people disappear into the ether. This is a violent, painful capital punishment like the electric chair or the firing squad or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we do believe in hell, biblically defined. We just don't believe in hell traditionally defined. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very good. Great. Um, I just want to say one thing just for the sake of the listeners. Um, just because you did mention um, historically some people have referred to it as annihilationism, you don't – in your mind, you don't view those as like different things really, annihilationism or conditionalism as you use the term, right? Or Well, I don't um, – I, I think annihilationism is a myopic label and let me explain what I mean by that. I, I don't object to it but the, the, the my understanding of – uh, resurrection and final judgment and, and the eternal state is much bigger than the destruction that I think awaits the finally lost. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've observed since I've become a conditionalist is that the whole idea of life has taken on a whole new level of significance. Um, you know, we, we, we as Christians talk big about the sanctity of life when it comes to abortion or when it comes to euthanasia. And yet the traditional view is that everybody lives forever, which mm -hmm. at least arguably can sort of diminish the quality, the, the, the value of life itself. Mm. And once, as a, once I became a conditionalist and I realized that, um, that, uh, that, that, only, that, that life is a gift and that only some people will forever receive that gift, when I realized that, mm. uh, life took on a whole level of significance, so did, so did immortality. And so for me, this, this debate – is much bigger than merely the destruction that awaits the finally lost. It's also yeah. about who is the recipients of life and of and of immortality and and of and of you know the presence of God in in the fellowship of His people forever. These are big things, and so I prefer conditional immortality because I think it better captures the bigger scope and significance of of these various uh, interrelated doctrines. Mm, well sure. Sure. That's great, Chris. This is Nathan. Um, I was just wondering if you could um, just. Give us a couple of verses that um, people who believe that those who are going to hell will live forever. C could you give us a couple verses that they might point to and say, well, this is what Scripture says um, and how you would how you would answer them? Yeah, and that's a great way to start this this portion of the conversation off because what I've often said uh, when I've um, fielded questions about this view is that what convinced me more than anything else – was that when I took a closer look at the texts that I thought and that most Christians have thought teach the traditional view, the doctrine of eternal torment, um, when I took a closer look, I realized that virtually all of them prove upon closer examination to be better support for conditionalism. Hmm. And so I'm happy to start out with this discussion. And, I, and I, we conditionalists, those of us in the conditionalist community sort of have a um, – uh, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? We've got a sort of term of endearment for, for what we call the, the – the, or for what are the three biggest texts that are typically pointed to by – people who believe in eternal torment, we call them the big three. Mm. And they are Matthew 25, 46, uh, in which Jesus says that those on his left will go into eternal punishment and those on his right into eternal life. Or maybe I got those backwards. But either way, the fate of one is eternal punishment and the fate of the other is eternal life. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, Revelation 14, 9 to 11 um, talks about the beast worshipers experiencing restless torment day and night and smoke rises from their torment forever and ever. 
And then Revelation 20, 10 to 15 describes uh, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet tormented forever and ever in this lake of fire. And then shortly thereafter, um, the resurrected lost are also thrown into that lake of fire. And so the uh, when you combine those two pictures in Revelation, the picture appears to be that the lost are tormented forever and ever. And so the traditionalist is going to point to th- these three texts above all others, but a, a tiny handful of a few others as well. And say, look, clearly the picture is the resurrected lost will live forever just like the saved will, just in fiery torment rather than in um, the blissful presence of God. Now, I happen to think that every single one of these three texts actually serves to support conditionalism more than the traditional view. Matthew 25, 46, um, first of all, indicates that only one of those two groups will live forever. Um it is true that the adjective, the Greek adjective is ionios. It means eternal or everlasting. It is true that that means that the that both fates, the fate of the saved and the fate of the lost, have got to be eternal. Mm-hmm. But the t- context, this context of being judged and sentenced, means that the nature of those two fates have to be different. Okay, And only one of those fates is characterized as life. Only the saved are going to live forever. It's at least on the surface that what it would seem to indicate is that the punishment of the lost would instead be death forever. Mm. And that's what we conditionalists understand, that if the wages of sin is death, as we think it is, and if that death will last forever, then it is eternal punishment by definition. Mm. Okay, Um, and in fact, you see this. you know, sometimes the argument that traditionalists will make is, look, if if eternal life means living forever, then eternal punishment must mean being punished forever. But if we look at similar places where uh, eternal is used to describe similar um, words like eternal redemption and eternal salvation, um, the, the, the author of Hebrews uses those terms in Hebrews 5, 9 and 9, 12. Clearly, the picture is not of Jesus forever in the process, forever saving people or redeeming people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something he did once and for all on the cross. So the, the, what is eternal is the outcome of the, of the, of the verb. Mm-hmm. Um, the saving was for a time. The salvation was forever. Similarly, we would say the punishing lasts for a time, that the, the, the act of executing the finally lost and the um, punishment, the outcome of that verb, will last forever, and that outcome is death. So, um, in short, it doesn't challenge our view, and the fact that the, the fates are either life or punishment suggests that uh, the punishment must be death. And in fact, if you look at the way that noun is used in the Septuagint, you can see cases where it's used of some sort of torment, or in cases where it refers to the capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, that, that's Matthew 25, and we could discuss that further, of course. I'm, I'm taking up a lot of time, so I'll try to go faster on these next two. Um, the thing about the book of Revelation is that it's the most difficult to interpret text of the entire Bible. Mm-hmm. It no, is No disagreement there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which doesn't mean we can dismiss it, but what it does mean is we have to exercise extreme care and caution when we interpret this text. Um, Revelation falls into a genre of literature called apocalyptic. It records this vivid, symbolic dream that John received uh, while he was um, in exile on the island of Patmos. And in that dream, in that highly symbolic vision, John sees in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, the the people who had worshipped the beast uh, suffering restless torment day and night in fire and brimstone, drinking the uh, fullness of God's wrath, uh, and smoke rises from their torment forever. But if you look at how those three symbols are used elsewhere in Revelation, you can look in Revelation chapters 18 and 19, where Mystery Babylon, the harlot who rides the beast, she is also tormented in fire. Mm-hmm. She is. She also drinks the fullest measure of God's wrath. And smoke is said at the beginning of chapter 19 to rise from her forever. But the angel tells John that this symbolism, at the end of 18, he tells John that the symbolism communicates the final destruction of the city that that city represents. 
And then you see the same use of these symbols in the Old Testament. Smoke rose from the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. You might remember, you might recall Abraham looking out at the smoke rising from those plains after God had destroyed the cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, smoke rises forever from the city of Edom in Isaiah 34. Uh, drinking the fullest measure of God's wrath is used to it causes people to die in the Old Testament. So, so, so this is symbolism that, in every possible way, is intended to communicate final death and destruction, not life forever and torment. Mm-hmm. And as for Revelation 20, um, there's so many things that we could go into there. But what I think is, um, I see one concept as being most uh, important here, which is the concept that sometimes in Scripture. When you have this kind of apocalyptic symbolism, somebody in somebody is recorded in the Bible as interpreting the meaning of that symbolism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, for example, you might recall when Joseph uh, was interpreting the dream of Pharaoh. Pharaoh talked about these four healthy cows coming up out of the Nile, and then four sickly ones came out of the Nile and devoured them. And when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he said the seven healthy cows are seven years of plenty, and the seven sickly cows are seven years of, of, uh, of famine. Right. Um, And you see this. Daniel does it. uh, uh, Joseph does it. it, it, You see it all throughout or in many places in the Old Testament. And it happens in Revelation, too. Uh, The interpreting angel tells John that the seven heads of the beast represent seven kings uh, and their ten heads represent seven kings or ten kings. Now, what's important about all of that is that John and God, John in chapter 20, verse 14, God in chapter 21, verse 8, they interpret this symbolism of the lake of fire and the torment that's going on there as symbolizing the second death. You see, traditionalists, they tend to reverse it. They say that the torment in the lake of fire tells us what death means, but that's doing the exact opposite of of the way this relationship is throughout all scripture. They're interpreting, they're saying this vivid symbolism means the second death. And whenever an interpretation is offered of this vivid imagery, the the interpretation is offered in plain, straightforward language. And throughout Scripture, when death is used plainly, um, it refers to death as as ordinarily understood. And that's what John and God are saying that symbolism means. Now, again, there are a whole lot of other things I could say about all three of those passages. But just on the surface, uh, or just slightly beyond the surface, um, all of them appear to be better support for conditionalism rather than uh, the traditional view. Thanks for walking us through all, all that, Chris, and uh, I think you have a, um, a very com- compelling case there. Um, and I also just want to say that I, I do agree in terms of uh, capturing the essence of, of your beliefs better by saying con- conditional immortality, meaning that um, immortality is granted to those who trust in Christ and, and not to those – it's conditional upon trusting in Christ, and it's not given to those who reject that offer of salvation, um, I think does capture – your beliefs better than the term annihilationism. But um, I did just just want to share real quick that um, I remember being in seminary and, and, and people praising the work of John Stott, who um, I think the term I had always heard was annihilationism, and, um, and praising the works he's done. Greg and I have often talked about how great of a book The Cross of Christ is. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, and I just remember so many of my seminary profs, you know, praising him. He gets this, these high accolades and then always with the caveat of, but be careful with the annihilationism <laughs> it's, stuff. Be it's careful man- with that. It's mandatory that it's, you say that. It's yeah. mandatory. Um, you have to say Stott's fantastic except for that, uh, that whole, annihil- yeah, the whole uh, uh, annihilationism thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the cross of Christ. I mean, I I don't. It's discouraging in the sense of you you read it and think, man, I could never aspire to write something that incredibly um, rich and, and dense and just think through every angle of something like the atonement that yeah. he did in that book. Um, but uh, but then when I start looking at the uh, 
the arguments for um, conditional immortality, specifically like what you've just presented, I feel there's been a great disservice done to people like Stott in the sense that I never heard it accurately described, and I felt like it was kind of a straw man in the sense of yes. Um, Stott just believes you disappear when you die, which is not what I understand he believed really. So yeah, and you know I appreciate you bringing this up because I think that there's been another disservice to uh, John Stott. Um, by the traditionalist community. And, and I, I mention this often just because I think it illustrates something really important, which is the um, the degree to which traditionalists are willing to assume what it is that a conditionalist's motives are. Mm-hmm. Here's what I mean by this. Um, mm. the, the book that we're talking about where John Stott sort of came out of the closet, if you will, uh, leaning toward conditionalism was Evangelical Essentials, which yes. he co-authored with liberal David Edwards. And in the book, um, or, or there's, the, the, the passage in question is typically quoted by traditionalists, and they insert an ellipsis in place of some of John Stott's words. So, for example, Randy Alcorn and Christopher Morgan both do this, and here's the way they quote hmm. Stott from David Edwards, from Evangelical Essentials. They, they quote him as saying, Emotionally, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. And then Alcorn and Morgan and other traditionalists, they put an ellipsis, the, the three hmm. dots, and then they skip ahead to where Stott says that scripture might point in the direction of annihilationism. And so, of course, the, the impression that these traditionalists are trying to give readers is that John Stott, uh, like other conditionalists, was a soft-hearted, you know, bleeding heart liberal who just couldn't stand the, you know, couldn't stand the emotional weight of the of, of eternal torment. And so, you know, he was twisted by his emotions into trying to desperately define some sort of other alternative to the clear teaching of scripture. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but the words that John Stott penned in place of that you know where where they cover it up with an ellipsis are really critical mm-hmm. after saying how he can't understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain john stott says but our emotions are a fluctuating unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it as a committed evangelical my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me but what does God's word say? Mm. And in order to answer this question, we have to survey the biblical material afresh. And that's and that's what all of us conditionalists believe is that we've got – no matter what our emotions are – and by the way, my emotions are different from John Stott's, and we can talk about that if you like. Um, uh-huh. But whatever our emotions are, ultimately scripture has got to be the determining factor, and the, I think it's deplorable. I think it's unjustifiable that people like Randy Alcorn and Christopher Morgan would cover that up with an ellipsis to try and paint an, an uncharitable, uncharitable picture of John Stott's motivations. Yes. No, I'm so, so glad that you had that at the ready. Um, <clears throat> and, and again, this is, uh, you know, this, this is Greg, Chris. I realize talking to three guys, you're thinking, wait a minute, uh, is this Nathan, Sean, or Greg? This is Greg. Uh, <clears throat> and I, um, I think I have the honorable distinction of being the, Oldest dude in this group, which makes me feel really <laughs> bad. That's why I say dude all the time to make it, myself feel younger. Accept sure. your honor, Greg. Accept it. Y- yes, I do. It's an honor. <laughs> right? it's an honor. <laughs> but um, I came to Christ in 86, uh, and uh, I was 16. And uh, one of the first books I read with any theological teeth, I have no idea why, was Evangelical Essentials by John Stott. Actually, I do know why. I was probably 19 or 20 at that point. 89 or 90, because I think the book came out in 86, if memory serves me, uh, serves me correctly. But I uh, had a campus uh, director in Crew, which was called Crusade then, that recommended I read this book. Because I was telling him I was raised by very loving parents that were agnostic, 
uh, an agnostic to borderline atheist older brother, and I'm the dumbest guy in my family. They all have <laughs> master's degrees. They're very bright, bright people. And he recommended that I read this book. I've read – first of all, I'm surprised – that book is a tremendous example of charitable discourse yeah. because I think Stott defended the gospel with such clarity and such humility, such charity towards David Edwards, who's sort of your, your kind of more typical mainline liberal thinker. Um, and uh, you know, Stott engages with him very warmly. Uh, it's a series of exchanges, you know, uh, sort of like the Counterpoint series. And uh, it almost seemed an ancillary point Stott was making uh, in in that moment. And that book became, for some people, a um, Stott's annihilationless book, which you could mm-hmm. clearly tell was not his main focus. It was something he uh, he gave. That's what I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Chris. Mainly, I I can't believe. Now, you you had mentioned earlier. Um, I don't know if you did this on air or you might have mentioned this before we went on air, but you mentioned being a young earth creationist. You may or may not disagree or you may or may not agree with me on this, Chris. So let me just give you my take and uh, interact with it as you will. I put this issue on par. I would have no problem telling an unbeliever. Let's just say I was an undecided person on this issue. Yeah, I've always heard the traditional view. I just assumed people uh, are eternally consciously suffering. Listen to Chris Date. Uh, listened to uh, you know Preston Sprinkle that he had on. I've I've read uh, I, I've read uh, Fudge's work on this, so I'm, I'm I'm a little bit torn. I'm wondering when I'm evangelizing. This is where I am on the age of the earth issue. Mm. Uh, when I talk to an unbeliever, Chris, and uh, they might have a scientific background. One, I'm not very scientifically um, <laughs> you know uh, eloquent. So I normally farm it off. If I'm talking to a dude who's really into scientific um, data, I will say, you know what? A lot of Christians have done some tremendous work on this area. I'm not one of them. Uh, But I can point you in the right direction. But just for conversational apologetics, I tend to be pretty willing to say, hey, you know what? Uh, Age of the Earth is an intramural debate even among Christians. Um, This in no way um, is something you have to have decided before considering the claims of Christ. So I'm sort of surprised, Chris, that there is such a reaction. Um, If I was talking to a person, and I'll say this to our audience as well, uh, wherever you stand on this issue, who uh, said, yeah, this idea of just eternally, consciously burning in fire without any respite, any release, any potential of ever escaping, um, I would have no issue saying, hey, you know what? That's an intramural debate even among some Christians. Um, I think a a pretty solid case can be made that while there is punishment, while there is a face-to-face encounter with God after death uh, and an accounting for one's life, there um, is not maybe necessarily what you're describing. That may be more of a traditional understanding than a biblical one. A lot of information I gave you there, Chris, but how, how do you feel about that approach uh, as I try to make that connection between the age of the earth issue and this issue of the the nature of hell's duration. Yeah, I, I think it's great. I generally agree. Um, I'll just interact with it in, in two ways. Uh, first of all, um, I do agree with it. I just I want to be careful not to give people the indication that I think um, – Christian theology is a is a sort of smorgasbord. Sure. You can just sort of pick and choose a buffet. Choo- choose what you want. I mean, mm. I do think Christians can make compelling cases for any view of of, of origins. 
Um, well, at least young and older. If I'm not so, I'm not so sure about theistic evolution. Sure, sure. And uh, yeah. and, and, and I think that mm-hmm. at least universalists can make the, a hint of a compelling case. I don't really think traditionalists can. Yeah. But either way, I, I yes, cases can be made, and I think that um, skeptics and and seekers should be encouraged to explore these various alternatives. But I would always want to make them. You know, I would always want to emphasize that uh, Christianity is a is is a religion of the book. It's it, it's a you know we ought to be submitting to the authority of Scripture, not just sort of simply picking and choosing what sounds best to us and then reading it into the text of Scripture. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Well said. So so that's the first thing I would say. The second thing, as for you know, you said that you can't understand in light of what you just said. You said you can't, can't understand why some traditionalists would react so vehemently mm-hmm. in opposition to this view, and I think that um, those who uh, aren't familiar, very familiar with the debate. They do so just because they think it's what Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh Day Adventists and stuff believe. And, yes, yeah. Um, um, and you know, I, look, the, the fact of the matter is that Muslims and the Westboro Baptist Church and Snake Wranglers and the Appalachian <laughs> Mountain churches, all of these churches uh, teach eternal torment. So, do we really want to play the game of associating each other with these <laughs> fringe groups? Yes. Um, but but the ones who are more uh, studied and familiar with this debate, I think who would who would say that our view is heretical or at least nearly heretical? They would say because th- that it's because of what they perceive to be the Christological implications of this view, um, and that might be something worth discussing now. Do you want me to take a minute to sort please, of elaborate? Please, please. I, I think I've heard you talk about this, Chris. If I'm wrong, tell me. Is this where you're dealing with what Christ did on the cross, what he suffered in his person? Yeah, that's right. Sure. Um, because you know, as Christians, we we affirm at least substitutionary atonement. Um, I affirm penal substitutionary atonement, but a lot of Christians increasingly do not. And but but even views like Christus Victor and you know other views of the atonement at least still include the element of substitution, sure. meaning that mm-hmm. meaning that Jesus bore on the cross whatever it is that was awaiting us. Okay, and the argument from the traditionalist goes, if what Jesus if if, if the punishment uh, awaiting the finally impenitent, the finally lost, is annihilation, the cessation of existence. Then Jesus, if he was, if he truly was a substitutionary uh, sacrifice, must also have borne that punishment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if Jesus ceased to exist, if he was annihilated, then one of two things is possible: either only his human nature was annihilated, in which case you have the three-day violation of the hypostatic union. For, mm-hmm. for those listeners who aren't familiar, I'm sure your listeners are super savavy, but the hypostatic <laughs> union. I mean it. I'm sure they are. They the, the are hypostatic- yeah. Sorry, I was I, sh- I laughed out of turn. I'm just a guest on this. Yeah. I, <laughs> I laughed because I, I listened to it, and I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, Everybody's savvy except Sean. Yeah, that's right. Gotcha. Okay, so everybody but Sean. Yeah. So Sean, this is for you. Then. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so the hypostatic union is is just the inseparable, everlasting, at least since the time of the incarnation, union between Christ's divine nature and his human nature. He, he isn't a confusion of the two. He isn't a half man, half God. He's completely God and completely man at all times, forever since the incarnation. But if his human nature ceased to exist, then you've got this three-day gap in the hypostatic union, and there's a, that's extremely problematic. Alternatively, mm-hmm. the entire God-man, the entire second person of the Trinity, both in divine and human natures, ceased to exist for three days, in which case the Trinity for three days was rendered a binity. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, extremely problematic. Yes. So from the traditionalist perspective, you can't affirm substitutionary atonement and conditional immortality because Christ didn't in any sense cease to exist when he suffered the punishment that we deserved. Now, if what we were saying 
is that the final punishment of the lost is the cessation of existence, then I think they would have a good argument. And I think they would have a reason to say that at least carried to its logical conclusions, our view is heretical. But that's not what we're saying the, the final punishment of the lost is. We say, as Paul does in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Yes. The, the deprivation of life. Now, um, when Jesus died on the cross, if, if we're, if we're you know, uh, Cartesian or otherwise Christian dualists, we would say that Jesus, when he died on the cross, just like everybody else who, when they first die, um, their souls subsist beyond the death of their bodies. But they've still given up their life. Mm -hmm. You know, they've, they've still they've still been deprived of their life. That's the punishment that Jesus bore. And and if you look at throughout the scriptures repeatedly and consistently, the, the biblical witness is that what Christ bore on our behalf as our substitution was um, the giving up of life. Mm -hmm. OK, mm -hmm. so now we as we as conditionalists think that the souls of the lost in the second death will be destroyed as well. But that's not their punishment. Their punishment is death, mm -hmm. the giving up of their life, this very thing that Jesus bore on our behalf. Um, now, we could talk about why their souls are destroyed, too. Um, the fact that they will seems to be pretty clearly indicated in Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, fear God who can destroy both body and soul. But the point is, is that the punishment we think awaits the finally lost is death, the everlasting deprivation of their lives. And it's the deprivation of Christ's life that he bore on our behalf. So it's consistent. There is no risk of um, of uh, rendering the Trinity a binity or or, mm -hmm. or, uh, or saying that there's a violation of the hypostatic union. Christ was dead for three days, mm -hmm. even if he continued to exist in, in, in his human soul. Now, the, the, the difficult challenge is faced, I think, by the traditionalist. Because think about it. The traditionalist says that at the final judgment, the resurrected lost are brought back to life that's what resurrection means. And their resurrected living bodies go on living forever, mm -hmm. forever. It, it's not it's not that they're they die again and they continue to be tormented in, in, in a disembodied soul. They are alive forever in, in resurrected bodies. But Jesus died in, on our behalf. Mm -hmm. um, if, if his death was substitutionary. But the risen, but but we, those of us who are saved, would have lived forever in torment if it hadn't been for him. Then his death couldn't have been substitutionary. Mm -hmm. um, so so I think that the, the traditionalist actually runs into a much bigger problem, Christologically speaking. And the way that traditionalists will sometimes argue this or respond to this challenge is they'll say, well, because he's the God Man, because he's both divine and human. The few hours of suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross can can serve as the sort of equivalent of the eternity of torment awaiting the resurrected lost. But there's a big problem with that. If if Jesus exhausted an eternity of torment in a few hours of torment, then then when that torment was completed, the penalty had been completely paid, right? Yes. But then why did he die? Mm -hmm. What penalty was there left to pay mm -hmm. with his death? I don't think that traditionalists can offer a good answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that, what they do is they render Jesus' death an arbitrary afterthought. It's not part of his substitutionary work, according to the traditional view carried through to its logical conclusions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's far more in danger of being heretical than anything that I believe. Mm -hmm. So those are my thoughts on the atonement. No, very interesting. Wow, that's a lot to – I had some earlier questions, but there's so much to interact with now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
I apologize. No, no, no please don't. Chris. No, it's it's great. Um, I guess just to clarify one thing, and then I'll maybe ask a follow up question. But are you saying traditionalists kind mentioning the hypostatic union like almost have to have to offer like a a split between the human and divine nature of Christ and his death, or did I misunderstand that? Well, that's what they accuse us of doing. Okay, because because they have thought that we are saying the wages of sin is cessation of existence, then, you know, that if Jesus bore that on our behalf, he must have ceased to exist. And either it was only his yeah. human nature that ceased to exist, in which case you have a problem with the hypostatic union, or his whole person ceased to exist, in which case the Trinity was rendered a binity. But of course, we don't believe that the wages of sin is cessation of existence. And so that challenge just doesn't hold. Gotcha. Okay. Um, maybe it's, I just want to say one thing on, on that real quick, which is a little, um, that's a funny, a funny thing. I would just say that's a funny thing to say from a traditionalist standpoint in the sense that there's a older, more obscure heresy called theopascatism, which I don't, I don't know if it's a, an accurate charge of heresy. But they say essentially like you can't split the – like when you talk about Christ suffering on the cross, we can never talk of the, the divine nature suffering on behalf of humans, which is a funny thing that they would accuse you of bifurcating the natures when traditionally there has been a view that if the divine nature suffered on the cross, that was a heresy, but most people don't. Um, mm. just, just historically, it's a, it's a funny argument, I think, but, um, but most people I, I, I've encountered, I haven't really heard of that. Um, anyway, I digress, but, um, <laughs> I, I did want to say in, in terms of, um, John Stott, that is, it's, it's kind of sad to me that they would put the ellipsis in there over his, uh, him kind of coming back to saying, I, I don't go on my emotions, particularly when, um, I mean, everybody who reads Stott says he's just such a pastor's theologian. He has this pastor's heart and this yes. scholar's mind. And, um, I mean, as a, as a pastor, I think that's a really tragic thing for people to accuse him of in the sense that if somebody comes to me and says, Hey, my, you know, my dad died and, and he was not a believer. Is there any hope for him? I mean, the last thing I want to say is no, you know, just have no conversation there. You want to think, you know, there's some sort of hope there. Maybe he heard the gospel 10 years ago and in his last hours he mm -hmm. decided to, to believe that. But you should have some kind of pause and reverence for the idea, particularly if you believe in eternal conscious torment. While, while feelings are not our final authority, we don't want to undermine them as God gave them to us. And we, that's a real thing we interact with. But, um, but I think the, uh, the charge of, uh, heresy on this on this topic is is also sad as well, just because um, I in in recent years I've really tried to challenge myself personally. If I'm trying to talk to somebody about the gospel, I've decided I don't want to try and um, bring them into a a relationship with God out of fear of the punishment, but really out of uh, just the surpassing beauty of Christ. And even mm. um, this is very personal for me in the sense that. Uh, I've been at the church that Greg pastors, uh, Christ Fellowship Church, as a as a pastor now for about fourteen months, it's twelve, mm -hmm. a, a little over a year. And um, and our tagline here is "Beholding Him" or "Changed by Beholding Him." And that's that's what drew me to this church in the sense of um, when I talk to young people that that say I, I don't want to suffer the consequence of my sins, so I've decided I'll be a Christian. I always it's always a little bittersweet for me because I wish they would say. I became a Christian because I saw Christ and all that he is worth. And I want to, I want to embrace that. And the idea that we're going to parse out, you know, which punishment is heretical to me, I feel like is a distraction from the bigger issue of, yeah. have you seen the beauty of Christ? <laughs> um, yeah. um, so 
I wish I could end on a question. I feel like I'm <laughs> sidetracked there. No, no. Um, I, <laughs> um, I think that's that's very good, Sean. Let me um, let let me jump in, Chris. At this point, I almost for our listeners. I'm sure some of our listeners are like, "Wow, they are drinking <laughs> right out of the fire hose." We got some really heavy duty stuff here, um, and and I want to almost represent the person listening that is trying to track and say, "Okay, how would I?" break some of this down. I don't mean to trivialize these significant matters, but just to come up with a little bit of agreed upon shorthand. Would this be fair? Um, I might give you two or three of these. That one of the ways to characterize the position that you're advocating um, is, like you had said, I, I've heard sermons my whole life, uh, Chris, that, you know, hey, you know, I've, one youth pastor I know is a good guy, would say, hey, look, man, you're all going to live forever. It's a question of which neighborhood you want to hang out in. Right. Um, <clears throat> But in many ways, what you're advocating mm. really puts a spotlight on a much clearer contrast between life and death. Uh, that, that our eternal destinies, would you say this is fair, are much less a question of geography, you know, which neighborhood, and uh, <clears throat> more about actual life and death. So that mm. would it, um, in one sense... Would you say you'd be comfortable telling an unbeliever you don't get it if you're appealing with him, uh, you know, uh, to you know, to him with tears in your eyes? Say uh, you've got a friend and you're saying, John, you don't understand. You are yeah. going to miss eternal life. You're not going to live forever with God, with Christ, in bliss forever. Um, would you f say, in light of your view, that's a fair way to characterize it, and you would be unabashed in? having an evangelistic peel of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and just to follow up on, on that with two thoughts, first of all, it is sometimes said by both traditionalist critics of our view and some atheists that this fate um, is nothing to fear. Mm -hmm. um, that, that death is, is nothing to fear, but, but that's <clears throat> ludicrous. I mean, we all know from the most consistent human experience is that the greatest human fear is death. Yes. Now, now we, there are, there are extenuating circumstances in which we would prefer death over the alternative, but those are extremely rare. Mm -hmm. By and large, we fight tooth and nail, uh, to avoid losing our lives. That, of course. um, the, the 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 real life person played by James Franco in 127 hours he mm -hmm. was hiking in in the mm -hmm. desert and he got his arm trapped under a boulder and he cut it off with a pocket knife so that he could survive yes um the saw series of movies is premised <laughs> yeah. upon the reality that we all know that we are we would be tempted to do the most horrific of evils in order to to hold on to our lives sure. so so human beings are deathly afraid of, of of death. That's a funny pun. I didn't even realize yeah. it. It's not that funny, but you know. Yeah. Um, also, another series that the sequel is better than the first. Sorry, that was a bad, <laughs> that was a bad joke. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, so that's one thought, and then the other thought is, um, uh, I had another thought and I've lost it. So it's, never mind. It's but my yes, fault. I, I take responsibility. It's the saw comment, Sean. <laughs> well, yes, I, I, um, I, I do. I do affirm what you're saying. I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to address the unbeliever sure yes and uh, again there's so much to and again really want to recommend uh for listeners that want to learn more check out rethinking hell by the way those first two interviews with uh, edward fudge uh were unbelievable sean and i were talking about those yeah. I, I was listening to him in my car uh chris and i um you know uh, at one point i thought oh is there something wrong with my audio and i realized he was crying that's right. He was speaking of the 
just tragic um, loss uh, of life, the, the, the eternal extinction of the unbeliever. And I recognize some people here, even in our audience, who say, oh, I don't quite buy that. But it was not a mere academic subject to him, although he's written uh, in, the, uh, in the fire that consumes you know, <laughs> prolifically on the subject. Um, and uh, I, can I ask you just a personal question, Chris? When you were interviewing him, did that, did that shock you for a moment? Almost like, oh, wow, the, 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 the intensity of this man's emotion. I, I was curious how that registered with you. Well, the, the episodes that you're referring to are the first and second episodes of the Rethinking Hell podcast, mm. but that was not the first time I had interviewed Edward Fudge. Oh, okay. I, I, I also have my own personal podcast, which you can include a link to in your show notes if you like. It's I would love to. The, yeah, it's called The Apologetics, which is just sort of a combination of the words theology and apologetics. Great. And, and, and what actually started my journey was essentially an interview I had done with Edward Fudge on my own personal podcast. And, and the main difference between the two is that on my podcast, I had interviewed him on his much bigger, more academic book called The Fire That Consumes, mm-hmm. whereas in the first episodes of Rethinking Hell, I interviewed him about his more popular level one called Hell, A Final Word. That's right. And, and, and so by the time I interviewed him for that one, I had already – uh, experienced what you're describing, and and but but when it happened the first time I interviewed him on my podcast, yes, that that took me aback. Yes, but what 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 I have noticed is that it's happening more and more to me. Um, just mm. uh, just last week, uh, I think it was um a little over a week ago, I was in London for the third annual Rethinking Hell conference, and during a panel Q and A at the end, where I and two other scholars were on stage being asked questions by the audience, uh, an audience member asked me what I think the fate of the uh, of, of of the unborn and, and those who die before some alleged mm. age of accountability, what, what that fate is. And, you know, without getting into the de- details, I said, this is, um, this is not a question I can answer dispassionately because um, of the six pregnancies that my wife has had with me. Uh, mm. Well, period. Um, we've, we lost two of those. Sure. And, and as a, as a very, um, very extremely conservative Calvinist um, or, or even just, being extremely conservative and believing that salvation only comes through expressed faith, I don't currently th- anticipate uh, experiencing eternity with, with with two of my own children. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was sharing this with the audience member, I teared up at that thought. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, so, again, skeptics will, uh, of this view, traditional skeptics of, the, of this view, will sometimes say it's it's nothing to fear. But those of us who have come to so value and appreciate life itself. It is an extremely um, tragic thing to know that one day there are people created in the Imago Dei, created in the image of God, who will die and never, ever live again. That's a yes. big deal. It, it, mm. Wow. Absolutely, Chris. I, um, I'll name him because he's put this out for public consumption, and we've talked about this man positively, at times negatively, uh, sort of a mixed bag, uh, John Piper who uh, mm. I will admit has had a tremendous impact on me mm. uh, in more recent years. I would say, Nathan, I've been a little more expressive that I have a few misgivings and mm-hmm. concerns. But yeah. one of the things I heard him say at a conference, uh, it was a Q&A uh, section, and uh, somebody asked him about conditional immortality. And I was pretty locked into that. Again, you know, I, Stott's book was one of the first ones I ever read. Never quite understood why MacArthur and guys like that disinvited him from pastor's conferences and stuff over something uh, as, to me, uh, insignificant uh, as his nuanced views on hell, which were offered in the spirit of um, 
you know, sort of a conciliatory approach to an unbeliever. But anyway, uh, Piper was asked about this. And I remember his response as clear as day. I, I was getting angry in my seat because I really thought it was a mischaracterization of the position. Is he said, oh, isn't it awful? Isn't it awful? And, of course, there's no better orator than Piper. So he's got that, <laughs> yeah. he, he's got that great rhetorical flourish to you know, further kind of uh, prove his point. But he was saying, um, you know, uh, just uh, for all those people that are just shuddering at the thought of not existing anymore – Think of all the pain and suffering you experienced a thousand years ago before you were born. And there were several amens uh, from the audience. He he definitely kind of got a lot of uh, affirmation, shared encouragement. And I remember thinking, boy, um, no reference to a post-mortem encounter with a living God. Right. Uh, no reference to what any conditional... Um, uh, uh, immortality advocate would would say in that, you know, as Hebrew says, it is a terrible and dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah. No sense that there is a recognition that their life is going to be over. No sense that their um, their judgment is is finally drawing nigh and they are facing it. No sense, as you said, Chris, that there is an unthinkable casting away into this place dimension, time, vortex, whatever somebody wants to call it, where they will undoubtedly suffer unbelievably and then um, go into extinction. And I remember thinking, man, it was frustrating to see a man, I'm just going to say it, of Piper's caliber, who's incredibly brilliant, who uh, I think knows full well that um, men like yourself, men like Stott, men like Fudge and so many others, um, don't have this namby-pamby view. Uh, and, and what bothered me about it, Chris, is that so many uh, people I still think have the idea that it's almost like atheism, that uh, <laughs> you guys just believe that uh, yeah, your life ends, the lights go out, uh, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I have never read anybody from this camp who has said anything remotely like that. M- maybe, mm-hmm. Chris, is there anybody in mm-hmm. in uh, your sphere, for lack of a better word, that has a position like that, that there is no post-mortem encounter with God? No. uh, The the closest I think that somebody could argue is that there are those of us within the conditionalist community who are not uh, what are called dualists. Mm -hmm. Um, I I am in an extreme minority amongst Christians, but um, a slightly bigger minority amongst conditionalists in believing that uh, human beings are physical creatures and that when we die, our mind ceases to function. We, we, don't, we don't have any sort of consciousness, but that will one day be reversed at resurrection, both for the saved and for the lost, and, and the lost will consciously experience, as you said, an encounter, a frightening encounter with the uh, awesome and, and, and holy God who will violently destroy them, and, and that's a pretty terrifying thing. Yes. And I remember that when, you know, I mentioned earlier that I was an atheist up until I was 20 or 21 years old. And prior to that point, I remember as a kid in particular, even as a teenager, when I tried to imagine what what it would be like after I died, of course, I thought there would be no what it is like after I died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and so I tried to picture what, what would it be like to no longer experience anything ever again. And the only thing I could picture was complete blackness. Yes. You know, there's there's no way to picture not existing. Um, but all I could think of was was complete blackness. And you know what? That thought 
terrified me. Yes. Yeah. Um, it is a, it is a fearful. So, so not only do you have the resurrection unto final judgment and this encounter with the, with the Holy God who will violently destroy the lost, but you also have the everlasting loss of life, which any atheist who, who is honest with himself and with the rest of us will admit is, is a pretty fearful and terrifying thing. But, but let me, let me piggyback on what you're saying with just one brief thought, if you don't mind, without, sure, please. uh, derailing the train too much. While while everything that we're saying I think is true, it, it is a terrible fate, uh, one, one to be dreaded. Um, on the other hand, I have started to appreciate an argument that I'd never used before, but I've started to use. It's a mm-hmm. philosophical argument, and so I, I, I treat it as only as merely supplementary to mm-hmm. what I consider to be the very good biblical and theological reasons. But in eternity... I've begun to wonder how, if the traditional view of eternal torment is true, how is it that we could enjoy, uh, without interruption, the blissful presence of God and the fellowship of his people if we know that people that we loved deeply and cared about immensely are suffering forever in immortal, uh, unbelievably torturous torment? Um, traditionally, advocates of this eternal torment view have tried to answer that in one of two ways, Okay. One way is they talk about this possible memory wipe mm. where God <laughs> where, where God sort <laughs> of yeah. yeah right where, where God sort of wipes the the, the memory of uh, clean of uh, of the saved of those people who they loved in life and who are suffering forever in hell but that just won't work because if you think about it um, our memories are in large part, that which define us. Yeah. Everything about our character is shaped inexorably by our experiences and our memories of those experiences. And if you and those memories are deeply tied, in, you know, inseparably tied to the people in those memories. And 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 there's no way God could erase our memories of our loved ones without radically altering our very identity. Yeah. So so I don't think that's a conceivable way that God could solve the problem, so to speak. The other way that, that traditionalists have typically answered this challenge is by saying that when our characters are transformed and, and conformed to God's character, we will see things perfectly from his perspective and we will rejoice in the everlasting punitive, you know, conscious punishment of the lost. And, you know, some people say that's a horrific thing to think about. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is mm-hmm. this. Biblically, there is no evidence that God relishes in the punishment of of the lost. Mm-hmm. Quite mm-hmm. the opposite. What does right. he say? He says, I take no, no pleasure, pleasure in the death of the yeah. wicked. Yeah. Yeah. So think about this. If What the traditional view does is it not only um, renders us incapable of, without interruption, experiencing bliss forever, because if our characters have been made like gods, then we too would grieve the ongoing punishment of the lost. Mm-hmm. But it also makes God incapable of experiencing uninterrupted bliss for eternity mm-hmm. because forever he would be grieving the ongoing conscious punishment of the lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at least with our view, as dreadful and as terrifying as the final loss of life is, at least once that has taken place, once Judgment Day is complete and the lost have been destroyed and the, and the, and the saved are all that remain and they live on forever in the blissful presence of God, at least they can move on. Yes. And enjoy and enjoy without interruption the bliss of the fellowship of God and, and his people um, without without having to constantly be aware of the fact that our loved ones are in misery. Wow. Yes. I, I, let me just jump in there really, really quick, Chris. First of all, so well said. 
to to go back to my earlier point, I was gonna, uh, and then I lost it, of course, because this is such <laughs> That's a my fascinating. Fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yeah. no, it's such a fascinating conversation we're having. But I was I I gave the one example to you know again try to think of the listeners saying okay, so it's not as much about geography and neighborhood as it is life or death, which I think is a very cogent point. Another point is, wouldn't you say, and I believe I've heard this mentioned on your podcast, um, and I think it's a very compelling argument, that in the traditionalist conception of the afterlife, and or, uh, I'm sorry, of the eternal state, sin is not abolished. It's quarantined. Mm. It's sequestered. Mm-hmm. It's it's placed over here somewhere. Uh, yet the picture we have of first corinthians 15 the last enemy to be destroyed is death this this complete vanquishing of all the enemies of god the enemies of man ultimately um are are completely eradicated and put into complete everlasting obliteration extinction whatever terms we can pile on top of other terms um do you think that's a fair portrayal of your position that you you would say, no, in our view, sin is fully and finally dealt with because it no longer exists? Mm. Yeah, I do think that's fair. Um, uh, advocates for my view, such as Dr. Glenn Peoples, he's a he's a Christian mm-hmm. and philosopher in New Zealand. He has included in his case for for our view this concept of the biblical vision of eternity. And in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, and there's a passage, in, I think, in Ephesians or Galatians, uh, Paul seems to use this language, this accounting terminology language, where he says that God's going to sum up, sum everything up. Everything will be all in all under Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, p- pictures pictures uh, of, of eternity in places like Isaiah 66 picture the lost having been vanquished and destroyed and only the saved living on forever. So this biblical vision of eternity does appear to be one in which there is no room in God's cosmos for sin and for evil. Um, and if that weren't enough, if you think about it, so one of, one of the important theological things that we need to do when we're, when we're discussing the topic of hell is we need to discuss what the attributes of God uh, how it is that they inform our conclusions on the topic of hell. Um, and there's so much I could say about this. I just did in my presentation at the third annual Rethinking Hell conference in London last week. But mm-hmm. one of the arguments that I've I've grown uh, appreciative of, w- one of the attributes of God is his goodness, his his uh, mm-hmm. his, his whole his goodness, which which comprises both holiness, his absolute uh, de- detestation of all that is, is sin and corrupted and evil, mm-hmm. and his his loving kindness, mm-hmm. right? His, 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 things like his mercy and, and his grace and so forth. Well, if God is absolutely pure and holy and detests all that is evil, the traditional view tells you not only will there, will there be this quarantine zone in the cosmos somewhere where everybody, where the lost are suffering and sinning forever, not only that, but according to the traditional view, God actually secures that ongoing reality of sin mm-hmm, and evil mm-hmm. for eternity mm-hmm. because he makes them immortal so they can keep on living forever in sin and evil and punishment. Mm-hmm. That's, that's striking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that the, that the thrice holy God, holy and holy and holy is he, that he would actually immortalize sin and evil forever rather than permanently vanquish it from his cosmos. I, I think there's something significant there. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Uh, Chris, this is great. This is uh, Sean again. I just um, there's so much I want to interact with. I'm, I'll share a couple things, but I want to end on a question here. Um, 
you just mentioning that you were an atheist prior to that. I was also an atheist until I was 19. And, um, and I remember, without going real deep into my testimony, just for me becoming a, a Christian, it was kind of like I was skeptical of everything. And then when I truly understood the gospel in its purest form, I was like, oh, you're telling me, like, given human depravity, I should be skeptical of everything, including myself. Hmm. But I just have to believe in one you know, God who is actually perfect. That kind of makes sense because I have an idea of the perfect and I just repeatedly see how everything has fallen. But I remember that being an early question as I, as I grew in my faith of like, so like how I'm the only Christian in my family that I know of at this point. And I would just think how, um, you know, how can I really enjoy eternity knowing that if Jesus came back today, my family would not be there with me. Yeah. And that was, you know, um, well-meaning Christians in trying to help me with this would just say, uh, well, we think probably God just like wipes your mind of that. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but again, no, n- not a shred of evidence for that in scripture. Yeah. Um, oh no, that's all. So, a- oh wait, go yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but just trying to wrestle with that as, as a guy who is skeptical of so much and, and just finding, you know, the Bible as an anchor and, um, and looking at that, and I and I think um, as as Greg mentioned earlier, you just kind of following the scriptures where where they lead you. Um, and and I want to be careful because I'm I'm not fully convinced necessarily. I'm I'm convinced that this is not a, a heretical position as you've laid it out so far. But um, but there's a I uh, I went to a a Southern Baptist seminary, and I don't want to mention anybody by name as this was personal email correspondence, but I. I had mentioned to one of my my former professors that I was exploring this issue, mm-hmm. which is funny to give you the the backstory there. In a discussion we had about baptism one time, he was very uh, adamant about a very very cut and dry specific form of baptism, um, <laughs> even so much as to if you didn't dunk a guy down. To which I said, you know, what if what if you got a guy that's six hundred plus pounds and you can't physically bring him under is there another way you could baptize him to which he said no you have to do it some mm-hmm. way figure out a way to which and i said well what if you have a bad back is, is there any other acceptable mode of baptism is is there any um you know any any leeway there in forms of baptism which he he was unwilling to concede mm-hmm. um and i said well if you read the didache there's there's some evidence in there that people did baptism pretty early in, in some different modes there mm-hmm. they they had some room for um, variation to which he said, well, the Didache is, is not scripture, so we can't use that as an argument. Mm-hmm. So when I, I was disappointed when I mentioned this to him um, and mentioned a Southern Baptist guy who uh, in the 70s, I forget his name, unfortunately, but had kind of endorsed this position, um, which he quickly dismissed and said, uh, you know, it is a heretical position and, and I you know, pray you you have wisdom in exploring it and tread lightly because it's, it's very dangerous to believe that. And then went on to quote just a million things from tradition and nothing from scripture. Right. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I, I did want to just share that because I, I was very disappointed that he was, he, he played that card when it was convenient for him and, and not so much when it, when it, uh, it wasn't in terms of his view of baptism. But, um, but anyway, the question I wanted to end, end, uh, my little rant on was you mentioned earlier, uh, you came into this position differently than John Stott in in the emotion regard, yes, and I'm I thought I'd, asking that. I thought I'd bite on that and just yes. see, see if you would explain that a little more for us. I will. Uh, I do want to say suggest the possibility that the Southern Baptist you're referring to, who was a conditionalist, might have been Dale Moody. I um, he think was you're a, right. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He was a, he was a professor of theology from 1948 to 1984 um, at at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and okay. uh, and he was a, he was a conditionalist. So. Um, 
Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I have uh, an idea. You might you might know that. Yeah. So thanks yeah. for sharing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I've I've got I've got to approach a variety of different traditions, and so it's helpful to know who who and what traditions I can appeal to, right? Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in answer to your question, um, I understand that this may make me seem it may indeed indicate that I am um, sort of hard hearted. You know, maybe I'm calloused. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But but the thought of, uh, of of eternal torment since I became a Christian has never been something that has that I've struggled with emotionally. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps it's because from the very beginning I sort of understood that the 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 truly traditional view, which involves literal flames, literally burning people's flesh off and regenerating it and stuff, mm-hmm. that nobody believes that anymore. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when I became a Christian, I accepted what most Christians now believe, which is a more metaphorical separationist idea of eternal torment. And, and, you know, I'll be honest, the thought of living forever in a prison cell doesn't scare me as much as dying forever. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, the idea of eternal mm. torment nice. as understood by most modern Christians, um, that is something that never caused me any sort of, um, emotional consternation. Um, I've always, ever since I've been a believer, been absolutely committed to following wherever it is that I understand Scripture to be taking me, even if it's mm-hmm. um, contrary to my emotions. And in this case, I didn't have emotions pulling me in a, in a direction away from the tradition. Quite the contrary, in fact, where emotions have been involved, they've actually they they actually pull me to the tradition. Because mm-hmm. you can imagine, here I was as I was beginning to explore this issue, an extremely conservative, reformed. Christian, uh, a podcaster having interviewed such notaries as notables as James White mm. from Alpha and Omega Ministries mm-hmm. and, and a variety of other people, somebody that I deeply, to this day, deeply respect and admire. And I remember at the time I longed, and to this day I still long, to have developed a relationship with James where he could sort of take me under his wing a little bit. I, you know, I've done a number of debates now, and, and I'd love to be able to learn from him in the area of debating. I'd love to be able to uh, uh, interact with Muslims the way that he does and so on and so forth. But but even that aside, there are now churches – sorry, I didn't finish my point. My point is, is that ever since I became a conditionalist, that relationship, to whatever extent it was beginning to blossom, has been severed. Okay. Um, and, I, and I knew that that would probably happen as I began to explore this. And I knew, as has turned out to be the case, there are now churches that I could not attend or be a teacher at. Mm-hmm. There are schools I can't attend or teach at. There are ministries that I could not be a part of. Um, Answers in Genesis, for example, my favorite Young Earth ministry. Uh, I interviewed somebody on the Rethinking Hill podcast who was a uh, employee of that, or at least a volunteer, and he had to resign when wow. he became convinced of this view, even though the reason he was convinced was his commitment to the authority of God's word, which right. is what Answers in Genesis is supposedly all about. Yes. So, so with all of this in mind, you can see hopefully how, if anything, my emotions were desperately, you know, making me desperately want to cling to the tradition because I knew that there would be hell to pay <laughs> yeah. the uh, for adopting this view. Yes. No, that that's very, very compelling. I remember on the first or second uh, podcast you did, again, with uh, with Edward Fudge, he made that point. He said that one of his issues with the traditionalist, Chris, was, of course, uh, that nobody really is a traditionalist. And he said, if you, if you read some of the stalwart Wesley, Spurgeon, I mean, those dudes were, were pretty hardcore. They would give the much more what I would call Dante-like traditional uh, in actual flames. And I knew of a guy when I was a young Christian, Chris, just a quick, quick anecdote, Mm. who, uh, I mean, I've been a believer for maybe three months. I'm 16 years old. I've got no spiritual parentage at all. Um, 
just kind of, you know, Tom Petty free falling. It was my, my Christian mm-hmm. theme song. And, uh, my friend Matt Smith was knew a little bit more, but not much more. And we talked to a dude who, who almost was obsessed with saying, let, let me tell you, Jesus is a master chemist and he knows how to resurrect a body so that it can suffer maximum pain in flames (laughs) and i remember like okay like it was so contrary to my own intuitive sense of things Mm -hmm. and again i'm going to echo whatever you've said so well chris john stott sean everybody i'm you know our feelings are not a uh the final arbiter of of what is right but i would look back now and say my in that case my intuition squared with scripture this was bizarre um so i know one of the things that fudge said in that interview was that Look, the traditionalists aren't traditionalists. Yeah. They they've they've preserved uh, the kernel of eternal conscious living, uh, but they've so recast everything uh, that he said, "I'm the one that I think is being more consistent with Scripture." So, uh, just to recap, this is going to be my final thought, and then Nathan, I think, is going to wrap us up, and we are definitely going to have a part two. Uh, would you yeah. not agree, Nathan? I mean, oh, there's, yeah. there's no doubt. But uh, so just again, for listeners tuning in, maybe some and I'm bouncing these off Chris to see if he thinks these are fair, short talking points. Uh, The one of uh, is, um, uh, of course, that it's not about the neighborhood, uh, but it's it really is about life and death. Uh, These are the stakes of um, that are assumed in the gospel, Uh, what people do with the gospel, whether they embrace it or reject it. Uh, The second one was that in the traditionalist view, sin um, and evil are quarantined, sequestered, but they are not abolished. Um, the third one, Chris, and I, I want to be careful because we could open this up to a whole other hour, but um, <laughs> maybe this is a way to say it, is that would somebody from your um, position be able to say to the Christian who thinks, oh, this can't be right, uh, would you be able to ask, um, okay, uh, where in the Bible does it say that everybody is immortal? Uh, and isn't one of the uh, the positions that you have, Chris, that this concept has crept into our thinking, into our church history, more from Greek philosophy than it has from Scripture? Yes. Um, I want to be clear. Uh, I don't think that the concept of sort of innate or universal human immortality was limited to a platonic worldview mm-hmm. there were there were there were pagan worldviews all around the world that thought that as well yes but but the but by all indications biblical cultures um did not see immortality as something that was uh you know universally given to all human beings um what appears to me to be the case um it appears to me that uh as gentile converts to christianity from platonism like Augustine, uh, and actually he also had a very a Manichaean streak as well, and, mm-hmm. and there were other there were all, there were other philosophers in the first few centuries of the church that that came into Christianity as Gentiles from from a Platonist worldview. They uh, understandably uh, rejected some of their the views that they had once held as Platonists. But the thing is, is that when we undergo a change of mind in in, in a big radical way of, of worldview, um, we don't. We're not always capable of fully shedding, um, fully taking off those glasses that so colored everything that we saw at one point. And you can imagine that if you came from a Platonic worldview in which all souls are eternal, you come into Christianity where, unlike in the Platonist worldview, human souls are created – 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you understand that is absolutely clear in scripture that human beings had a beginning. Yes. Uh, and, and so it was very easy for these Christian, these new Christians, former Platonist philosophers to reject the everlasting nature of souls into the past. They could reject that easily. Mm-hmm. But when they come to passages like texts text that speak of things like eternal punishment or, or highly apocalyptic symbolic visions like in Revelation, and they see people tormented forever, you can imagine that they're going to read through those through the lens of their Platonism, which had taught them at one point that human beings are eternal in the other direction as well, the yeah. future. So I do think that that is largely to explain why it is that that began to take hold in the first few centuries of the church. And you really don't see it dominating for years and years and years and years and years until the time of Augustine, when he put his understandably very, very influential stamp of approval on uh, the, on the doctrine of eternal torment. So yes, I do think it's the reason why Christians believe it is primarily because of Platonism. Um, I just don't, I just want to be cautious not to give people the impression that I think that only Platonists thought this. I think that there were plenty of cultures around the world, but you don't see biblical cultures thinking it. Hmm. Well said. Very good. Um, Chris, we're going to wind down uh, soon here, but uh, two questions for you. Um, One is, do you think that in the final judgment that there will be some people that will have a length of time that they are punished. Good question. Well, remember, I think the punishment for sin is death, not, um, not torment, which is to say that if I do think there are some people who suffer longer than others, it's not that length of suffering that is their punishment, Mm. right? Their punishment is death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that death will be everlasting uh, for everybody that is not covered by the blood of Christ. Now, do I think it's possible that de- that the idea of degrees of punishment could be accounted for by varying lengths or degrees of suffering as part of the process that kills them? Yes, I think that's conceivable. Mm-hmm. Um, take, for example, the differences between the electric chair, um, hanging, and lethal injection. Mm-hmm. The punishment in all three of these earthly capital punishments, the punishment is all death, all three of those, okay? But you can see that each of the three varies in degrees of how much the person suffers and for how long, mm-hmm. right? So I do think it's at least conceivable that different means of destroying people can inflict degrees and lengths of suffering that are different for each person, and that might explain degrees of, uh, of punishment, even though the punishment that they all face is death mm-hmm. forever, but that isn't my personal understanding, uh, my first, my personal approach to degrees of punishment. I think that, um, you know, look, Jude says that the – Jude and Peter both say that the punishment awaiting the finally lost is going to be like the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. And nobody in Sodom and Gomorrah was suffering for weeks or years or mm-hmm. decades on end. They were all – Fiery, you know, by fiery destruction, they were destroyed in a matter of hours, maybe days, maybe some people uh, suffocated by smoke inhalation or something like that. But either way, it was relatively brief. And I think that it will probably be that on the day of judgment. And I think that degrees of shame are probably, or sorry, degrees of punishment will probably be accounted for by degrees of shame. Mm. Um, Biblical cultures uh, and and even cultures around the world today, the, the uh, Asian cultures, for example, where samurais used to kill themselves rather than uh, be remembered shamefully forever. Uh, cultures all around the world through history have cared deeply about how they are remembered. Mm-hmm. And somebody like Hitler will go down in infamy forever, forever held in contempt by those who remain, or at the very least by God, um, arguably. And, and and I think that that, whereas, you know, your little old grandma down the street who 
you know, couldn't hurt a fly, but was sinful and wasn't covered by the blood of the lamb, she might hardly be remembered at all. And I think that that could probably be a more likely way to account for degrees of punishment. But yes, to answer your question, and I've gone on and on, but to answer your question, it is conceivable that there are different degrees or lengths of suffering. I just, I don't think that is the nature of the punishment. Uh, and, and I'm not convinced that that is the way that degrees of punishment are accounted hmm. for. Interesting. Very good. Um, and then the final question, just before we wrap up, uh, where would you place this on doctrinal importance? Um, you know, many times on this podcast when we have uh, authors or speakers on who who differ in various ways, that's just something that we like to ask. I mean, is this an issue that should be um, so dividing uh, the church as it seems to be? I mean, people, you know, uh, calling uh, you and in, in your group, uh, you know, for lack of better term, heretics um, and things like that. I mean, is this really an issue that should be dividing like this? I certainly don't think so. And in fact, in my um, in the in the chapter that I contributed to the second book that I edited, um, it's called A Consuming Passion, and it's a um, it's a book in honor of Edward Fudge. In the in the chapter that I contributed to it, I discouraged my fellow conditionalists from dividing over this mm-hmm. because although it does tend to be traditionalists who um, treat us as heretics and won't allow us to minister with them or fellowship with them and so forth, there are conditionalists who tend to leave their churches. Because their churches teach the traditional view and will go and congregate with like-minded conditionalists. Mm -hmm. And although I understand the temptation for that, particularly for those who find the doctrine of eternal torment to be extremely emotionally problematic and and even even casting the character of God in an extremely negative light, um, I can understand the temptation to go to a church where they don't have to be uh, taught that view from the pulpit periodically. Um, But – I think that does a disservice to the kind of unity that as Christians we're called to maintain um, over the non-essentials of the faith. And yes, I think that um, – I, I, I do think that conditionalism is a or, – or understandings of hell are things about which as Christians we can charitably and lovingly disagree with one another uh, while enjoying unity on the essentials of the faith. Um, and so I would place this on the plane of say the Calvinist-Arminian debate or the cessation charismatic debate or the young earth old earth debate uh you know and on and on it goes i think that this is a secondary non-essential over which christians can disagree while enjoying unity on the essentials of the faith Mm. so well said thank you so much chris for coming on and and joining us it has been so great um so insightful i mean you know just the way you have said everything, your knowledge on the subject, your scriptural knowledge on the subject, um, so key and so important. Just thank you so much for that. It's been my pleasure. And and if I might encourage those listeners who might want to submit questions to you um, for part two, uh, I would encourage them not just to listen to the Edward Fudge interview that you guys mentioned, but listen specifically to episodes four and seven Mm -hmm. of the Rethinking Hell podcast, because what listeners will get if they go and listen to those in episode four, they will get a positive case for our view from uh, my colleague uh, at Rethinking Hell named Glenn Peoples. Yeah, that was excellent. Yeah, great introduction to our view. It'll explain what it is that we believe and why from a positive case perspective. And then in episode seven, what they will get is me um, answering what I perceive to be the most common biblical and theological uh, and and other arguments historical against our view. So if they listen to those two episodes, I think they'll get a really good picture of why we believe what we believe and why we don't believe in the traditional view. And then that might give them some ideas for questions they could submit to you to ask me next time. 
Very good. Excellent. Yeah, and there will definitely be a next time. This will be uh, uh, this will be airing uh, mid November. Yes. We're, we're recording this uh, mid October. It'll be airing mid November. Yes. So we will uh, have a little time to promote this, etc. So by the time you're listening to this audience, uh, probably in 2017. We'll probably cover this. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll we'll cover this, Nathan, on our New Year's podcast to give a little little heads up. Yes, uh, for uh, what's coming in twenty seven early twenty seventeen, uh, Chris. If that works with your schedule, we would absolutely love to have you back. Give some people some time to really think about this. Um, and again, uh, it has been an absolute joy, Chris. Thank you for your knowledge on this subject and sharing it. We know we are barely scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. We, we want our in- listeners to know. We're mindful. This is an attempt at an uh, at an introduction uh, for a subject that's very nuanced, very complex. Uh, but uh, you did a great job, and uh, we have benefited greatly, Chris. Thank you. Well, you're very kind, and, and the pleasure and honor is all mine. Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and sign off now. Greg, Sean, Chris, we just rocked the Casbah. Conditionless style. Ladies and gentlemen, you just finished listening to Chris Date from the Rethinking Hell podcast. And we were so excited to have him on talking to us about um, this idea of conditionalism, um, annihilationism, um, and so it was so exciting. We are uh, going to announce the winner of the Paul Tripp book, New Mercies. Uh, we had two winners. We said we were going to give away two books. Eleven people uh, went ahead and participated in the contest retweeting Paul Tripp's podcast, so we appreciate all of you who retweeted that. Uh, There were 11. We only had two winners. So um, our first winner, Jacob Romlo. Jacob Romlo. And then our second winner, Honor Knight. Honor Knight. So Jacob Romlo and Honor Knight, congratulations, guys, for winning those books. Uh, Please remember, send me your uh, name and addresses at thesego to 11 the number 15, at gmail.com. These go to 11, the number 15 at gmail.com, and we'll make sure we go ahead and uh, send a copy of Paul Tripp's new book, New Mercies, to you right away. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for participating again. Um, Thanks for listening in, and we look forward to hearing your questions um, for Chris Date uh, on the next one that we do with him. All right, take care. These go to 11.